Well, I want to thank, first off, I want to thank Susan for inviting me. I know there was, um, uh, I'm a bit of a fill-in, and uh, but I'm still just as grateful to be here regardless. Um, I haven't done a whole lot of this since, uh, since COVID struck. Uh, I do a radio show, but let me introduce myself formally. I'm John Kane. My Mohawk name is Garhio. Uh, it, it means good woods. Just uh, to clear all that up all at once. I am Mohawk. Uh, my wife is Oneida, and I live on the Cattaraugus territory of the Seneca Nation. Uh, so I got three of five nations, three of six nations covered. Um, I do a radio show in New York City and in Washington, D.C. I do a podcast as well. My radio show gets put up as a podcast as well. I have been an advocate for Native people um, almost my entire adult life. I have worked on issues ranging from fighting New York State over taxes, uh, native uh, taxes on Native people on Native territory. Uh, I've weighed in on everything from gaming to missing and murdered Indigenous women to uh, the residential school era. I have talked about history and culture um, and the clashes of those cultures. So that's kind of what I want to do here tonight. Originally, when I was um, invited. Uh, I was asked to speak about uh, history and culture. And I said, I can do that. However, I would be as guilty as so much of the way our history and, and our existence is uh, perpetuated, which is always to cast us as relics of the, of the past. And I don't want to do that. I, I have no problem talking about history and culture as it was. But oftentimes, that's how it always gets represented talk about chiefs and clan mothers and you know ceremonies and that and that kind of thing but we don't bring it forward and so what it leaves is the, the it leaves the general public not understanding so what's the big deal what's the problem between native people and you know the, the sitting governor or the past sitting governor or whatever else what, what's what's the problem and if you don't connect our history to our contemporary existence you will never understand any of that so I'm gonna talk a little bit about history and uh, I might correct a few or, or at least expand a few thoughts, even thoughts that are represented in this very museum. Uh, so we're gonna, no, I'm not gonna throw anybody under a bus here, <laughs> but I'm gonna make some corrections and some adjustments to the way our history is told. And hopefully in a way that doesn't feel like I'm attacking anybody's uh, version of that history, but just to offer some, some thoughts that, that might enlighten a few people. And by doing that, it gives me an opportunity to, um, to see how the message is received and whether I think any of you are gonna walk out of here feeling like you learned something or not. So that's, that's the hope. So let me start with history. One of the things that always happens with Native people is there, we begin, and in fact, when I was a kid in school, they used to teach history uh, in a way that it was always periods of history, right? And it started, anytime American history started, it starts with Indians. Not my word of choice. It's a misnomer uh, awarded to us by Columbus. Um, not my choice. Uh, we have a, actually have a word. It's called, our word is ungwe And what it means is real people or original people. And by real or original, it means that we are real to this place and that we're tied to this land. So when I say ungwe ungwe, it has a sense of place and a sense of originality. So that's, what, that, that's the word that we use instead of native. And I, I oftentimes will use the word native as something fairly benign that, that people can understand what I'm talking about anyway, without having to get involved in 
words that have either bad history or some other kind of uh, political overtone associated with it. So you study history, and then the next period is discovery. And it's like, and for most of you who are old enough that this is the way you were taught in school. You were history, there were Indians, then there was discovery, and then there was colonization, then there was the Revolutionary War. I can go through period by period. I still remember all that stuff. It's as, as strange as that may be. The problem is that we didn't end at discovery, but that's the way it's taught. And every time somebody comes in and talks about history or culture, you still get the sense of, oh, that, that, they had such a good, rich culture. In fact, one of the words that I sometimes cringe in using, but I still use it, is, is the word indigenous. In of, in of itself, the word indigenous seems like a, a perfectly fine word to use to describe native people, or ongwe ongwe. But the problem with indigenous as it's used in the international community, it's always associated with people being descendants of a, an original people. Not that we're still those people. And so if you're only gonna frame that word with, with colonization, a, a people who once were and the indigenous people today are the descendants of those people, post-colonial period. I don't think that our whole definition has to be framed around colonization or that we aren't those same people just in a modern era. We're not just descendants. Yes, I have ancestors, but to, to suggest that I'm merely a descendant of the people who, that I come from is, um, is somewhat problematic. So I use the word indigenous, but I often have to, oftentimes have to use the words in, in a way that I, that I reframe them, I guess. And so I make sure that they, they understand what I'm talking about. But the, one of the, the, the questions that happens when you, when you teach history in, in terms of periods, the first thing they teach about in that Indian period is where did we come from? And what there invariably happens, what invariably happens is, is there is an attempt to rely on what I call and others have called a single point origin theory, that we came from this specific place. And of course, we were all taught, and the museum still has some information that talks about migratory patterns, that native people populated this continent by coming across the Bering Strait and what, what people call the, they've called the land bridge. Now the problem with, with that theory is that when they framed it, they, they did, look, they had a theory. They, they said, well, native people must have come from, your, uh, from, uh, you know, from Asia. So then they started trying to backfill all of the information that would support that. They, and they did you know, ice bore digs to say, okay, there are certain things that happened in the climate that in the, uh, during the ice age and the receding of ice and that kind of stuff, that there was a, a period of time that native people could have made it from Asia to North America. The problem is they keep finding more evidence, archeological evidence that we were here outside of the window that the land bridge theory supports. So then they say, well, well maybe the window, our window was too narrow. And so they, they expand the window a little bit, even though that was the basis of the theory. But they keep finding more and more evidence of native populations and, and not just here, but uh, in the Southwest and in South America. And so it, it really starts to erode at this notion that the entire Western hemisphere was populated by a migration that came across the land bridge. It, it just doesn't hold up. And it, it doesn't even support 
that the majority of our population or even a minority of our population, a decent sized minority could, could have come that way. And native people never have this conversation. It's always, it's always experts, right? It's, it's always anthropological experts. It's always archeologists and scientists that come up with, this, uh, with these theories. We have, our, we have things we call the creation story, which, which basically place us here since time immemorial. Now, that may not be supported by anthrop anthropological evidence, um, because if you go through anthro uh, by that evidence, everybody came from Africa. And that might not be an unreasonable supposition to make from genetically and all that other stuff. Um, I was just reading recently that, um, uh, that uh, white skin is a fairly recent phenomenon. It may only be between five and 8,000 years old because Europeans prior to 8,000 years ago were as black as Africans. That sometimes is uncomfortable for some people, <laughs> but, uh, but that, that it, like, I mean, that hold, that does hold some water. But when we get back to this idea of single point origin theory for, for native people, the fact is that there was likely people who were able to cross the Atlantic Ocean from Africa to uh, South America. If you look at Africa and Brazil, they're not that far away. And there are, we know hurricanes have no problem blowing across that Atlantic. So the idea that, that, that people with some navigation skills may have made it um, is entirely possible. I would also presuppose that um, the navigation skills that uh, people that we now call Polynesians was pretty advanced as well. So I think there's every bit as likely that native people or people came to this continent, whether we were here originally, you know, since, since the beginning of time or not, I think it's entirely possible people came across the Atlantic, people may have come from the South Pacific, and whether a land bridge existed or not, there were certainly coastlines that could have been navigated to get here, you know, without having a land bridge. I would contend because one of the things that always gets brought up, well, you can see that there's uh, genetic connections to the people of uh, Siberia and, Mon and Mongolia to people of North America. Okay, if, but if there's that genetic connection between a, uh, a limited population in the easternmost parts of Asia, why wouldn't they be more connected to, to Western Asia and, and Europe? Why would there be a distinction between that population and there if the migration didn't go the other way? I mean, it makes more sense that if there's a connection between our population and a, and a population that, that at some point became separated again because that land bridge went away or that ice bridge or whatever they want to call it, the, the Bering Strait theory, pro I think that there probably was migration. And it could have gone both ways. But I don't think that to, to suggest that, that our population as indigenous people could have solely come across that way. It doesn't, it's not supported by, by, by genetic migra migratory theory. It's not supported by any of the archeological or anthropological theories either. I think migrations could have happened. Human beings move. It's what we do. And we always have. And so um, while I'm not going to debunk completely that there was never migration between North America and Siberia, I would suggest that is, uh, that is not as well-defined as, um, as the textbooks have taught us. And again, we all come from a generation that, that had this, they, weren't, they didn't even, there's a word theory, right? Theory is, is a word that suggests that the scientific data leads you to that conclusion. 
I would argue that it's not a theory, it's a hypothesis. And a hypothesis is different because that's a question. That's not necessarily um, gathering data to see where that data um, brings you. Now I'm sure this wasn't the conversation that you were gonna have when you got here, but, that, but I just wanna start there because <laughs> because as, as, as I went through the museum, the first thing we see is, is, the, is the migratory patterns that, that attempt to explain how we got here. We're still trying to figure out how you got here. <laughs> but but uh, so there's a lot of connections that native people have throughout the Western Hemisphere. The idea that, that we traveled among this hemisphere and uh, whether we ever made it to Siberia or not, is pretty well documented. And we see that with, with everything, corn. Corn is a perfect example. You know, corn was, was traded um, and it was, I'm gonna use a phrase that some people get scared of, it was genetically modified by the hand of man, us. Because the corn that's grown in the Southwest is a little different than the corn that we, we grow up here. And of course, before anybody figured out how to scientifically separate DNA, our people would, in every region, we would take an ear of corn, we would take the, the tallest stalks, and we would take the biggest ears, and then we would take the center rows of the, that corn, where the rows were the straightest, the, the kernels were the least deformed, and that's what we would keep for seed corn. So we would select the best possible corn I mean, it all tasted the same. So we could eat the ones that were a little bit funny looking. You know, so that, that was no problem. But we, but we would use the, the most identical and, and, and perfect kernels of corn for our seed corn. And in every region, when you do that, you would essentially modify and, 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 and improve that corn in every region. And that's how you end up with, with perfect corn in, in every region. So... Um, our word, just to give you a little bit of difference about how um, native language works versus uh, many of the Latin-based languages or languages of Europe, and I can't speak to the ones of Asia, I don't know. English is a very noun-based language. We, in English, we label things. We identify things and we, we give them labels, and frankly, we forget even where the labels came from. We don't know why we call this a table. I mean, we don't, and, we, and then we invent words and we forget why we, why we came up with those words. Then we use words that we, we manipulate that, that frankly that don't even make sense. Then we do all that, all that in English. Most native languages, and I can speak um, of, of Mohawk and the Haudenosaunee languages, and by the, by the way, the word Haudenosaunee, you, you've grown accustomed to the word Iroquois, not our word of choice. Iroquois, I've heard the etymology of that word come two ways. One is that it meant something to do with being a snake. Uh, one was that the French, when they, uh, when they um, tried to label us, meaning Mohawks is the eastern door of the Haudenosaunee, they said we looked a lot like the Hurons, but we were the other Hurons, Hurons That makes sense to me. But anyway, I, uh, I'm, I'm not a linguist, but, but anyway, that's not our word choice. We say Haudenosaunee. In Mohawk, we actually say Haudenosaunee. We actually begin it with what you would say phonetically is an R instead of an H. And, but Haudenosaunee is what is, is commonly known. And it means people of the way of the longhouse. 
And in our culture, we describe our lives as being of the way of the longhouse. It's not just about the building. It's not just about the building that we're both our residences and our council houses and that kind of stuff. We describe the Mohawks being the keepers of the eastern door of that longhouse and the Senecas being the keepers of the western door of that longhouse. We said the four directions are our walls and the sky is our ceiling and the ground is our floor. So the longhouse is, a, is an ideology um, as much as it is um, a structure. Um, so again, it's, it's, it's a metaphor essentially for how we view the world that we live in. Uh, and that's what, that, why we, we call ourselves the Haudenosaunee or the Rudenosaunee, uh, the people of the way of the longhouse. Then you guys start showing up. And of course it starts with, uh, with Columbus making it to the, what is what's called the Isles of Espanol. And, uh, and that clash of cultures, it wasn't even a clash at first. Columbus actually um, uh, was shipwrecked. He, uh, he was stuck and the native people helped and, uh, and of course, Columbus didn't know this continent existed. And I know some people say, well, you know, everybody says that he calls them Indians. India didn't exist as a country back in 1492. That's true. But white people were still calling, Europeans were still calling that area. Everything east of the Indus River or southeast of the Indus River, they, they were clearly referring to that area as India, even if the folks who lived there didn't call them that. What a coincidence. That's happened to a bunch of people, right? So, so when Columbus wrote in his journal, once he landed on the Isles of Espanol, he assumed he had reached the uh, easternmost islands of the South Pacific, of, the, of what, the, uh, what the Europeans were already calling the, the Indies. That's what he, uh, in, and it was also called Indonesia. It wasn't that he thought he had reached India, what we know as that, that, that country today. He thought he had reached the easternmost islands of the, of, of the East Indies. In fact, they decided to call the Caribbean the West Indies. And that name still, uh, I mean, that's still a name that is, that is used, right? So that's how he comes to call us uh, uh, Indians. There is a, um, uh, a work that has been worked on for years um, in the black community that they refer to as the 1619 Project. And 1619 refers to the first slave ship that brought African slaves to North America, uh, to Jamestown, I, I presume. Um, and, and that is pitched as the America's original sin. Well, if we're going to call slavery America's original sin, then we better start with the original slaves of that original sin. The first transatlantic slave ship was not Africans being brought to um, to the Western Hemisphere. Now, Africans were already being uh, enslaved in Europe. And in fact, there were papal bulls that, uh, that not only authorized it, but encouraged it. And it would be those papal bulls that would be the foundation of what, what is referred to as the doctrine of Christian discovery, which said if the Christian nations of Europe went into a place where pagans lived, they could um, subject those people to uh, perpetual servitude, slavery. They could take their stuff, take their land, they could do what they wanted with them. Later on, there was a little bit more conversation about trying to convert those people because, but there was this debate on whether people of color, black people in Africa, ultimately native people on, on this hemisphere, whether we were truly human or not. This was a debate. 
And this debate goes back to Plato and Socrates, by the way. I mean, these guys thought that, you know, that, well, Greeks, but uh, ultimately Europe thought, or Europeans thought that, uh, that they were the epitome of humanity. And that, that anybody who didn't, that had a culture that was so different than theirs were either primitive and possibly not even quite human. And so that was a debate. So what Columbus thought he could do with the, with the people in the Caribbean was immediately enslave them. He said, you know what, these guys are pretty nice here and they're not very um, aggressive. We could probably en enslave the, all of them with about 50 people. That's what, that's what he wrote in his, uh, in his journal. And he said, they, they don't even know, I mean, other than you know, Cain's spears that they had, they, they don't even have metal, they don't know what a blade is. They grabbed a hold of one of our swords and cut their hand. They, didn't, they, didn't, they were unfamiliar with, the, with our advanced weaponry. And of course, Columbus uh, was, was trying to go. And, and, and again, let me clear up. Columbus miscalculated the entire size of the globe. Because had he not run into, uh, if, if the Western Hemisphere didn't exist, they all would have died at sea. Because they, they were a long way from, from the East Indies. They were a long way from their target. They, they never would have made it. In fact, they were, you know, they were close to mutiny when they, when they reached uh, that much shorter, shorter route, which, uh, which got them to the Caribbean. So he had miscalculated. And in fact, when he died, he still didn't realize, Columbus is, this is. I'm not saying the rest of humanity wouldn't come to realize. But at that time, Columbus still didn't realize that he had not reached the South Pacific. He still thought that those islands and these, these Indians, because that's what he called us, <laughs> were, um, were from the South Pacific. So he did, but, but his mission was to enrich himself. This was, not a, a, this was not a voyage of discovery. That's another way that it's misrepresented in history. This was a commercial enterprise. He was trying to create a, um, a easier trade route because there was already a lot of conflict happening on the way from a, from a land uh, uh, voyage. There was already a lot of tensions existing between all of the people that the Europeans had kind of pissed off along the way between there and India. So while well, we can get away and we don't have to deal with any of those nations of Islam and the Moors or any of those people that we already started to drive out of Europe, um, we could advance our, you know, um, our trade capabilities by a long shot. So that's what he was trying to do. So when he gets to these islands and he sees, you know, look, they got kind of neat stuff here. They get these beautiful birds and, you know, great food. Um, but we don't see anything of real value here. He was hoping to find gold and spices and these things that he was going to bring back and, and make this a real commercial success. So there was slavery. And he found that there was a real appetite back in Europe, especially for young girls. 12 years old, the, the 9 to 12, those girls were, were bringing a pretty good uh, um, price. Uh, he referred to how many Castellanos they would, they would bring. So that's what, that's what he did. He started bringing them back as slaves. But he also did find there was some, uh, some minerals in these, in these islands, and there was some gold. Just, it w just wasn't as plentiful as he thought. So he, put, he started making these, these people work in the mines. The entire population of uh, indigenous people was almost completely eradicated. Some of them were completely eradicated by, not just by Columbus, but by the, 
uh, Spanish in, in general. It was um, there, even the Spanish bishops who were there among them kept writing back to the to the Pope saying this this is terrible. What they're doing here is just terrible, and it's and it's well documented. I do have a video on YouTube, um, Columbus in his own words, if you ever want to look that up, uh, and and I get into into some of those details. But what happens with Columbus's voyages is the Pope does, or popes, a series of them, weigh in. And as I talked about this doctrine of Christian discovery, that becomes the European model. That they can go, that now that they've learned a little bit more about navigation and they were more skilled about it, and now they've realized there's a whole other world that they didn't know. They referred to us as the new world, right? Um, there became a bit of a, you know, a bit of a race. Who's going to claim it? And so, the um, the Catholic Church. I mean, the, the the British had not separated from the Catholic Church yet at this point. You know, this was this. There was no Anglican Church yet. There was no Protestants. It was every everything was Catholic. And so, the the Pope advanced this idea that um, uh, th again that you can you can go into these pagan lands and take whatever you want. What would happen ultimately by the time? Um, British started, uh, the UK started sending people. They sent a guy by the name of John Cabot. His real name was Giovanni uh, Caboto. He happened to be Italian too. All these Italian guys apparently uh, were, Italy wasn't a country either by then, uh, at that point either, but they were of that Italian peninsula or area. But J John Cabot is the one who would actually sail for um, Great Britain and, and declare all this land for Britain under this doctrine of Christian discovery. Now, this is obviously church dogma. So how does it, how does it become you know, uh, so codified into law? Well, the monarchs were all, they all claimed to be sovereigns, which that, that notion of having the power to rule over other people came from, uh, came from the Pope. I mean, the Pope literally would, uh, and, and the church was involved with crowning these kings. It was a religious sacrament. And regardless of what you believed in terms of um, Christianity, this idea that, uh, that there were people representing the Vatican that would suggest that they could bestow God's authority on certain families in, in Europe, that's, it's, it's kind of a bizarre com, you know, concept in, in many ways. But it held for a long time. So obviously uh, the UK comes in and uh, so the British start colonizing uh, North America in particular. The Spanish were made it into Florida and, and, and Mexico and um, they, and, and Portugal would, would be into what is known as Brazil. So there was a lot of, the French would come. <laughs> so there was, a, there was a lot of tension between these European nations, a lot of competition. But there was also an established, what they were considered, I say rule of law, but it was, it was a custom. And this doctrine of Christian discovery, which meant that they would all would recognize whichever nation landed someplace first. So that's how you have the a young United States, Thomas Jefferson, negotiating the purchase of the Louisiana, the Louisiana Purchase, which the French got from the Spanish. So, and and this you could argue, did they get the land or did they just get like what they call discovery title? Well, this is where that whole doctrine of Christian discovery gets, gets a little awkward. And it actually becomes codified into U.S. law in the 1820s. 1823, two white guys uh, who had 
acquired land, and it wasn't even a purchase. It was more of a lease. Johnson and McIntosh. These guys, two guys um, bring a case before the Supreme Court because one claims that they got the land through this lease from uh, the Cherokee, I believe. And the other said, oh, no, we got it from the state we got, or, the, or the federal government. Because one was the, the non-native government, one was the native government. And so Justice John Marshall, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, in, in, in this, and there's a, a, a trilogy of cases that he ruled on. But in 1823, in Johnson v. McIntosh, he codifies into U.S. law the doctrine of Christian discovery. He basically says native people have no title to their land. They merely have the right to occupy it, like the animals do. That our sovereignty was necessarily diminished upon discovery. In fact, he's, he, he has a quote where he talks about how extravagant the pretension is that he is putting forth in this case, that they would equate discovery with conquest. He says, but if we can do it from the start, if we can say that discovery is the same as conquest from the beginning and sustain that lie, that argument, then it holds and it becomes law. And, and then he goes on farther says, and it can't be questioned later. So if we can say this thing early on that once we laid our eyes on these people and their lands, that we conquered those people and we conquered those lands. I mean, because we, I hear it all the time. I even hear Native people say it, talk about conquest. The reality is there were only about 50 named military um, engagements between the United States and Native people. And the United States didn't win them all. They won most of them. But it was only, like I said, it was only about 50. There was, there was over 600, by some counts, as, as many as 1,000 distinct groups of Native people. So to say that, you know, uh, tens of conflicts would result in the conquest of hundreds of Native people is, is uh, again, another absurd. Uh, and, and many of us were never in a direct conflict with the United States. The Haudenosaunee? We got pulled into the Revolutionary War. Um, Mohawks um, were, some Mohawks were, were aligning pretty cl closely with, with, the, uh, with the United Kingdom, while the Oneidas, uh, and this had more to do with who with their interpersonal relationships were. There was a Reverend Strickland, or Kirkland, I'm sorry, Reverend Kirkland, who had strong relations with, uh, with the Oneidas. And he convinced bands of Oneidas, groups of Oneidas, to support the, the colonists. Now, the problem that the Senecas and the Mohawks had is, look, we've gotten King George to already back away from expanding land. And in fact, if you read the Declaration of Independence, and most people don't, if they do read it, they don't really analyze it. Not only did Thomas Jefferson refer to Native people as merciless Indian savages in the Declaration of Independence, but I think it was like the 13th, one of the these facts submitted to the candid world, as he put it, was that the king, King George, was not, only, not allowing enough immigration into the colonies to fill the spaces that they wanted more of. They wanted more native land. And King George in 1863, had issued, or 1763, had issued the Royal Proclamation. It said, there will be no more expansion in the Indian country. We, 
we've got all we can handle right now with with possible you know conflicts at, at our frontier borders. So, and the colonists, one of their main reasons, it wasn't taxation without representation. It wasn't just that. It was that they wanted more land, and the king was forbidding it. And he was forbidding them from bringing in more mercenaries from other, from other European countries. I mean, isn't it crazy to think about the, that the, the colonists wanted more immigration because they wanted more people to come help take more land from, from Native people. That's, that's one of the basis, one of the, the, the foundational arguments that they put forth in the Declaration of Independence. And you, and you can read it there. It, it doesn't say it the way I'm saying it, but if you look at it, what they're, what, what they're complaining about was not being able to expand their population and expand their land holdings. So there is a problem that Marshall, Justice John Marshall, solves with this codifying the doctrine of Christian discovery. Now, the problem is that's 1823. The Haudenosaunee 30 years earlier, uh, 31 years, uh, 1794, almost 30 years earlier, had um, George Washington had negotiated what, uh, what we call the Canandaigua Treaty. And the Canandaigua Treaty, it says three times, there's only seven articles in this treaty. It's not a real long document. It says three times, the United States acknowledges that the land is yours. And he said this of the Senecas, he said of the Oneidas, and he said, it, I think, of the, of the Mohawks. But he said in three separate articles of this treaty, the United States acknowledges that the land is yours and we will never claim the same. Nor will we disturb you in the free use and enjoyment of that land or your allies who live amongst you. That's said three times in, in the Kennedy Retreat. Now, that doesn't suggest that the United States has fully embraced this notion that Native people didn't hold title to land. In fact, in the 1830s, when, uh, there was, when the whole removal policy of the United States was going on to, to push Native people uh, west of the Mississippi, the Senecas were approached, and they were approached to, um, about moving to Kansas or Oklahoma, but I think it was Kansas. And the Seneca leadership at the time said, if we went, what would be the status of the land that we built, and, and whose land would it be? And the United States answered back, they said, it would, it would be yours. You would own that land, in spite of Johnson v. McIntosh and, and, and Justice John Marshall's words about us not having title. It would be yours. It would be yours in the same as it is here. The same as the land you're leaving. And we would never claim it, and it would never be made a state. That's what the assurance was. Senecas didn't, didn't go anyway. The, 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 what you know is the Tonawanda Senecas, they were a group that was, there was already tensions within, uh, within Seneca Nation uh, as a people. Um, and the Tonawandas, or the people who would become known as the Tonawanda Senecas, they actually took the money, but then didn't go. And then bought the land back. So, yeah, the, so the land that is known as the Tonawanda Reservation or, uh, um, is, is actually held in a little bit different status than Cattaraugus or Allegheny or you know, our Mohawk territory or Onondaga territory. It's not original title. The, the state worked with the, the, the Senecas in, uh, on, in the Tonawanda Band, and they actually devised a state land trust. So in many ways, the status of that land in Tonawanda is different than what um, Cattaraugus and Allegheny is. 
I'm probably not supposed to talk about that because it's, it's a little known secret. But, uh, but, 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 but it, it's problematic because it's never been resolved. And what happens with history, it's kind of like John Marshall. If you can get away with something in the beginning, you can hold it long enough, then you make it permanent. Well, I'm not suggesting that the Tonawanas don't legitimately own that land. I'm just saying that there's, um, there's the possibility for, uh, for arguments because of the role the state played in helping them resecure resecure their land because they never they never issued them back an original title so so this is where some of this again this doctrine of christian discovery even though it, it seems like it didn't hold up and it didn't apply to us we come forward i told you i was going to do this right we come forward and the oneidas got re their lands holdings reduced to 32 acres the Oneida Nation only had 32 acres. I lived there. My wife is from there. So the Oneidas were trying to expand their land base. They had won a Supreme Court case, uh, and, but it wasn't a majority. It was majority, but it wasn't unanimous. A Supreme Court case that basically what the Supreme Court said, we acknowledge that the Oneidas have the right to claim and sue for title to, uh, it was like, 25,000 acres. It was part of a smaller test case. The Oneidas will ultimately try to claim 6 million acres, um, which a legit claim, but, uh, but this case was referring to what was the test case, which was 25,000 acres. So the Oneidas bought some of that land, and they said, well, we're taking it off the tax rolls. Well, in a court case, which was the city of Sherrill, small little town next, near Oneida, New York, where not far from that thir 32 acres that I talked about, um, the city of Sherrill sued the Oneidas because they wanted to tax them. It went all the way to the Supreme Court. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg wrote the opinion. And, and I don't know, if, I think it was a majority decision, but it, was, it wasn't even close. It was, if it wasn't unanimous, it was damn close to it. So it didn't matter if somebody thought these justices were liberal or conservative. They all took the same, uh, uh, the, the same approach on this. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg wrote, and she's the liberal darling of the court, or was. Uh, and she wrote the opinion. She cited, so this is a Jewish woman on, on a modern-day Supreme Court. She cited the doctrine of Christian discovery in footnote number one as to her decision. She also cited another legal doctrine. She called it the doctrine of impossibility. And that doctrine of impossibility, as Ruth Bader Ginsburg explained it, and as you look it up, you, you see, was that it was impossible for Native people, once they lost their land, once they lost control over the land, even if it was done through fraud or theft or anything else, once Native people lost control over the lands, they could never reclaim jurisdictional control or sovereignty over that land again. That's the doctrine of impossibility. And it's based on a case out in Lakota territory. I think it was a Yankton Sioux case that was already close to or over 100 years old. This was in 2005. The funny thing is, 15 years prior to that, there was a case involving the, the city of Salamanca that had a lease that expired with the Seneca Nation. And in an effort to resolve that, that settlement act or, or create a settlement for that, they passed a law through Congress called the Salamanca Lease Settlement Act. And the final provision of that, and it involved the state and, and the federal government paying the Senecas somewhere in the neighborhood of $60 million, but also clearly identifying 
that the city of Salamanca is on the Allegheny territory of the Seneca Nation and that they would have to pay a lease to the Senecas, including every individual landowner. That didn't go over real well. Some people actually burned their homes. I don't know if any of you recall this, but there were people in the city of Salamanca that said, oh, hell no. I'll burn my house before the Senecas claim it. And all the Senecas said, no, no you're going to pay less taxes that you would have to, you know, regular taxes, but you're going to pay us a lease. And, and I think most people have worked that out. And, it, and it's, you know, now I'm not saying the Salamanca is an affluent um, community by any means, but, um, but that's the way that went. But in the final provision, there was what they call the Land Acquisitions Clause. And this is an act of Congress, came out in 1990, that said the Senecas could use some of their settlement money to reacquire lost land. And that land would come to them in original title. It would not be trust land. It wouldn't be held by the United States for their, their use and enjoyment. They would actually be able to reacquire in original title lands uh, uh, that, that were ancestrally theirs. So Ruth Bader Ginsburg cites this case out in Yankton Sioux Territory where the courts held that the, that the Yankton Sioux could not re reclaim authority over land. But, uh, and that was over a 100-year-old case, 1,500 miles away. 250 miles down the road, the Senecas have the right to, to reacquire lost land. And in fact, the three casinos that they have, all three of them, including the one down in Allegheny, is on purchased land. Purchased under this land acquisition clause of the Salamanca Lease Settlement Act. So it gives you an idea that the rule of law isn't quite what applies to Native people. A good friend of mine wrote a book recently, and it's called Federal Anti-Indian Law, The Legal Entrapment of Native Americans. And what he argues is that there was never a law, there was never an Indian law passed by Congress. Every one of them was, was a law to affect us in some negative way. And out of that, the doctrine of Christian discovery has a strong foundation. Now, I mentioned that John Marshall had three cases that he, um, uh, that he had ruled on that impacted Native people forever. Codifying the doctrine of Christian discovery was one of them. But another one was that he, uh, and this was in what is called the Worcester case, and where he, he, in his legal dicta, in his opinion on this case, said that Congress had ultimate authority over the affairs of Native people and that it was based in the Constitution, the U.S. Constitution. And then they called the plenary powers doctrine. The problem is they don't. And the Constitution mentions, the U.S. Constitution mentions Native people three times. They were mentioned in the apportionment clause of the U.S. Constitution. And it's really unfortunate that many people just don't know that much about the Declaration of Independence or the U.S. Constitution. But I'm going to tell you, the apportionment clause basically says um, who is, uh, how taxes will be apportioned and, who, and how representation in Congress will be. Senate, we're, we're, we're two uh, senators for every state. But Congress is always based on population. So that meant you had to do the census. So the apportionment clause also involved the census. But what it says is we don't count Native people. That's the same one that said we're going to say three-fifths of a black man, right? So southern states could end up having a little bit more pull because they could get representation for their slaves, but the slaves just never could vote or be citizens. But it refers to us in that, in that clause, too. It says, excluding Indians not taxed. 
um, none of us were taxed. So I don't know why I said Indians not taxed. But so the apportionment clause makes it clear that we're not a part of the U.S. Constitution. We're not in it. We are a distinct people. Now, the other two places confirm that. The other two places were mentioned. We're also mentioned in the treaty clause, which is an executive authority. It says the president shall have the power to negotiate treaties with foreign nations and with Indian tribes. Now, it didn't put us exactly the same because we weren't foreign nations. So it had to mention us separately, but equally. It said negotiate treaties with foreign nations and with Indian tribes. The th now, neither one of those things suggests that Congress has any authority over us, right? But the third place we're mentioned is the Commerce Clause of the U.S. Constitution. And the Commerce Clause says Congress shall have the power to regulate the commerce in and among several states, meaning interstate commerce, with foreign nations, and with Indian tribes. With, not of. I mean, to suggest that Congress was granted plenary powers over Native people would be the same to suggest that Congress was granted plenary powers over foreign nations, which obviously they don't. So there was a, a, a clear recognition of sovereignty in both the Treaty Clause and the Commerce Clause. And what it basically said is, we're going to regulate what you do with Native people, not what Native people do in terms of commerce. So you might have to make sure that you get federal permission to, do, uh, to, to engage in trade. You may have to get a license. You may have to do certain things if you're going to uh, conduct trade with Native people, according to the Constitution. But it's not to say that Native people couldn't do things or that Congress, and this, and this is what the Supreme Court ultimately says, and they say it over and over again, that Congress has the authority to regulate the meets and bounds of tribal sovereignty. Well, is it even sovereignty then if Congress has the authority to, to regulate it? And, and it's not founded in the Constitution. And what happens on every turn is what the United States boasts as operating under the rule of law, it never is what is used when it comes to Native people. Almost every law passed relating to Native people is based on, on, on a sole principle, authoritarian rule. It's not based on the Constitution, and it's not based on, on rule of law, on, on, things that, on, on how you'd apply it else, elsewhere. And I'll give you an example of this. The third time that, John, uh, that Justice John Marshall rules in a, in a case in, uh, around Cherokee territory down in that area. And in this case, he refers to Native people as like wards of the state, like a ward-custodian relationship. And, and he, he, this is, again, an opinion. It isn't even this opinion that he expresses in this, in this case, and this was uh, Georgia versus the Cherokee Nation. Or, uh, yeah. Um, U.S. versus Cherokee Nation or something like that. And he doesn't explain where that comes from. He's basically saying that Native people are wards of the state. And out of that grows what we hear said, said often now is that the United States has a trust responsibility to, to Native people. That's what they say. And by trust, they don't mean trust is a virtue, like I trust you. What they mean is trusteeship, that the United States has been somehow granted or invented this notion that they were our trustees. However, 
there's a fairly well-defined set of laws associated with, with trust law in the United States. And the Supreme Court, time and time again, says, well, we don't mean that kind of trust law. So when we talk about the trust responsibility or trust law as it relates to Native people, it's different. It doesn't follow, it's, it doesn't follow the same rule of law. Because if you are granted trusteeship over somebody, that doesn't mean you can do whatever you want to do. It means what you are bound to do what's in the best interest of your ward. The person who, who you have, who is supposed, you're supposed to have their trust, right? The best interest of the ward is what the custodian is supposed to be responsible for. But that's never the way it's worked out with, with uh, Native people. It's always the first and uh, primary uh, um, concern is the national interest of the United States. Well, that automatically kind of throws out this idea of, of, of trust law. So we have the doctrine of Christian discovery. We have this plenary powers doctrine, which when we talk about that trust responsibility, what they always come back to is that Congress has that ultimate authority. And it is with Congress that that trust responsibility to Native people is placed. Well, we never gave them that. I mean, it's just, it's these things that get, they get written in legal opinions and then they get acted upon and they get worked into the law. We just had a, there was a case called the Indian Child Welfare Act. That was passed in like 1978. And what the Indian Child Welfare Act was supposed to do, it was supposed to put a final end to the residential school era, which is when they took native kids and they ripped us away and our, you know, our children away and they put them in these schools where they would be forced to indoctrination into Christianity, they would be abused and, and they would be deprived of their native identity. Kill the Indian, save the man. But that Indian Child Welfare Act wasn't just about residential schools. It was also about what had become a very, very corrupt system of foster care and adoption. It had gotten to the point where a full 60% of native children were either in residential schools. Well, actually, at one point, it was, it was high as 80% were in residential schools. But even as residential schools became, became diminished, 60% of Native children were being adopted out to, to non-Native families. So you had state child protective services removing children from their home, placing them in white foster care, and ultimately, if they ever got out of foster care, would go into white families, which was all still a part of this assimilation uh, process the program of the United States. The Indian Child Welfare Act was supposed to put an end to that. So what they did is they said, states, your CPS systems must place a priority on children, Native children who were removed from a home. You must place a priority in placing them back with Native families. That sounds great. But wait a minute. Why don't we have a say in that? Why didn't the Indian Child Welfare Act say, states, you have to collaborate with the nations in the removal of a child. And the nations will place those children in, in native homes. They didn't acknowledge that we had any authority over our own children. So even the Indian Child Welfare Act, an act of Congress, because they have plenary powers over, they have ultimate power over the affairs of native people, they just set up guardrails for what had been traditionally a very corrupt system of, of child protection services as it related to Native people. We still weren't, we still weren't granted or acknowledged to have the, our own authority over our own children. But I will say, our people cheered it because it had gone so badly before that 
And we start to buy into this idea. Yeah, Congress has our back now. Well, this, got, this case got challenged just recently. There was a ruling this year. It was called the Brackeen case. And Brackeen is a family of white folks in Texas who had been the foster parents of a, of a native child, I think from Navajo territory. Mother you know, had a drug substance abuse problem and, um, and they were granted foster care and ultimately um, wanted to adopt that child and did indeed adopt that child. They weren't, this child was not placed under the Indian Child Welfare Act with a native family. And I think they even had, they may even had it worked out with both the mother and possibly the Navajo, I, I'm not sure. But then that woman had another child, but she still was not a fit mother. So the Brackeens wanted the other child. Well, this time, a relative of that woman said, no, we're going to take that child. So it came down to a battle between a native family that wanted to, play, to, to receive the placement of that child and the Brackeens, who were wealthy. These were wealthy white people, and their wealth came from oil. So oil companies were actually funding their case. The argument that Brad Keynes were trying to make was that the Indian Child Welfare Act was first a violation of states' rights. It was an overreach by the federal government, and that you know, the federal government had no right to, to diminish the state's power over child placement. But they also argued that it was racist because white people could not be denied having native kids simply based on the race. So they want to reduce this whole idea of native people that we were merely just another race of Americans, albeit a very marginalized race of Americans. They didn't want to acknowledge that we were distinct in any way or that, dis that distinction didn't matter. So that was the argument they were making. They never ruled on the racism part because the Brackeen said it was also racist to deny a child the right to, to, be, to be, you know, adopted to, a, to an affluent white family, that that was racist. The Supreme Court didn't rule on that. The Supreme Court left it only with the first argument. And they said, nope, it's clear. The plenary powers doctrine exists. It's been a well-established part of U.S. law. And if Congress wanted, uh, was going to pass a law that affected Native children, they could do it. They had the authority, and this court has always held in every instance that Congress has the power to regulate the meets and bounds of tribal sovereignty and look after the trust responsibility of Native people. Now, Native people cheered that because the Indian Child Welfare Act uh, survived the challenge. The problem is it still entrenched us in this notion that, that Congress has power, has, ultimately has ultimate say over everything to do with our lives. And they never addressed the racism question. And here's the problem with that. If this case finds its way somehow, with the court perhaps get, becoming a little more conservative than it is already, or, or whatever. I mean, look, we get, we get screwed by liberal and conservative judges either way. But um, if they take up that racist that racism issue, if they can reduce Native people as just a race of Americans, then every Native program that exists, even the, the existence of the Bureau of Indian Affairs, well, how come there's a Bureau of Indian Affairs? That's racist. Indians are just Americans. Why do they have a whole division within the Interior Department? Why do Native people get to do gaming? 
Why do native people get control over their own resources? That wasn't always the case. There was a case back in the 50s. There was a case called the Brown versus the Board of Education. Everybody get, learns about that one, right? So that court was pressured. This is during the, the heat of the, heat of the Cold War. That sounds funny, doesn't it? But the, in, in, this was in the throes of the Cold War. There were communist countries that were saying, you know, the United States is pretty racist. Look how they treat black people. They were losing a PR battle to, to, to communist countries in, in, uh, in the world. That was part of the reason that this case, Brown versus the Board of Education, judge, uh, um, an attorney, young attorney at the time, uh, Thurgood Marshall, was able to bring this case before the Supreme Court and got and overturned the separate but equal, all this, you know, all of this, this racist laws that exist, Plessy Ferguson, all that stuff. But that same court, less than a year later, had another case that came before them. So that, th this court takes on this moral mission, right? To, to kind of eradicate some really strong racist language in things like, you know, whether black people should get the same education that white people should. That's what the Brown versus Board of Education was. And everybody knows that, right? But that same court, only a year later, or maybe a less than a year later, heard a case called the um, Tihitan case. The Tihitan case is a, the Tongass National Forest, which is where Alaska kind of comes down into Canada a little bit, and there's the Tinglet. Native people live there. And the United States was making, or U.S. companies were making a ton of money off of foresting, uh, um, um, the, the logging industry. And so the Tinglet said, that's our land. And we deserve to get paid for all the, all the timber that's being taken off our land. So in spite of the, the, the court trying to like hedge a little bit on some of its racist rulings in the past, in, the, in this Tiaton case, they said, no, nah, it's not yours. We don't owe you anything. That land, you don't even have a, you don't have legal title to that land. We own your land. Cited the doctrine of Christian discovery. This is this is in uh, I think I think it's 1955 as uh, as it rings a bell. But so they once again utilize this notion that native people have we don't have control of our own resources. They can they can mine they can log. I mean the gold rush. You know people San Francisco 49ers that 49ers is all about gold rush right. And you know. They were still paying scout bounties during that during the gold rushes that went uh, went through the plains in California because they needed to get rid of native people because they wanted our resources and there was no trust responsibility that had our backs. In 1987, or uh, yeah, 1987, California was going to try to shut down a high-stakes bingo operation on a small native territory called the, the Cabazon uh, Band of Mission Indians. So it was California was going to shut close their, um, their bingo hall. It w went through the courts and it went all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said, there's no underlying federal statute that regulates native gaming. So California, you can't shut them down. In fact, you've got gaming in the state. They've got the right to do gaming this year, but, but there's, in the absence of any underlying federal statute, you, there's, you can't claim that their gaming is illegal. That was called the Cabazon case. About 
18 months later, Congress pushed through a law called the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act. Now there was an underlying federal statute. Now they could say what was legal gaming and what is illegal gaming. They couldn't say it before that. And I gotta be clear, the Supreme Court didn't give the Capazons the right to do gaming. It acknowledged that the Capazons had the right to do gaming. I mean, it acknowledged that native people could do gaming on their territory. That's what it did. It, it, it acknowledged a right that always existed. Because, why did it exist? Because the plenary powers of Congress had not taken it yet. So in 1988, Congress took it and they passed the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act. The first requirement, now in 1988, we were already doing some pretty good battle in, in most native territories with states and states trying to stop us doing things like, not, not, the, not our proudest feature, but selling cigarettes and gas and that kind of stuff. Stuff that was, had a high state tax, anything that we could create a, a, a bigger margin on. Because there are a whole lot of people who were eager to go to native territories. You may, you may be more familiar with doing it now, but even 30 years ago, and it wasn't, you know, people were, were pretty skittish about going out to a native territory. So in order for us to have any kind of commerce that had success, we had to have a pretty good margin. Luckily, a state that taxes its people as high as the state of New York creates some pretty good opportunity if we can get away with it, you know, do away with charging state tax. So we've been fighting sta uh, states, and not just we as Haudenosaunee, but all over the, the United States. There were native territories that were fighting state control over <clears throat> all aspects of their life. Even though that plenary powers doctrine said that states, you don't have this, have this order unless we give it to you. We were still having all these fights. But the first requirement in the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act was that the tribes had to negotiate a gaming compact with the state that they, were, that they resided in. So in order for the Senecas to do gaming, they had to negotiate a gaming compact with the, with the state of New York. That expires in two months, not three months, in December. December 9th, it expires. I don't know how many months is that. But yeah, December 9th, the, the current one, it'll be 21 years, it expires. Now, when Congress did this, they created a completely unlevel playing field because states have powers that we don't. And one of the first states to say, there was a provision in, in the IGRA that said, if a state won't negotiate a compact, the native people can sue the state and force them to negotiate a compact. And Florida said, oh, wait, that violates the 11th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Oh, yeah, yeah, I guess it does. So they struck it, and they didn't put anything in its place. So the assumption, and, this is, and it has been implemented once, was that if a state doesn't want to negotiate a compact with, the, with, the, with whatever native territory, that the native gaming enterprise would be or existing could negotiate it with the federal government through the interior department but it's not codified it's not defined in the law so there's some people believe that if that gaming compact that the senecas have with the state expires on december 9th then on december 10th seneca's gaming operations are illegal they're no longer operating within the federal underlying federal statute so that fear gets put into everybody and it gets put in, the, in, in, in with native leadership as well. So the compact that they had that came, came into existence in, in 2002 and has existed, you know, it'll, it, will, it will be 21 years in this, this December, 
had a provision in it that wasn't required by law. There's no requirement for native people to pay the state to do gaming. In fact, it's prohibited. Under the statute, it says states can't tax a native gaming operation or force them to pay. That's what it says in the law. And it also says it has to be clear that the tribe is the primary beneficiary of the gaming operation. There's also a provision that says there can be no third party stakeholders. It has to be owned. You, uh, the, the nation can hire a management company, but the management company cannot have equity in the native gaming operation. So there can be no third party stakeholders. But so New York State negotiates a compact with the Senecas. And this was George Pataki at the time. And in there, the state's saying, well, it sounds like you're willing to share some revenue with us. Let's create a formula for that. And so what the Senecas ultimately get duped into agreeing to is a revenue sharing provision that says the state of New York will protect the Seneca's gaming market. And they will do that by not allowing anyone to put class three gaming machines, slot machines, in the 15, county area, 15 counties of Western New York. So from the other side of Rochester all the way over. And for that, the Seneca's will initially pay the state. A new term got made up. It's called net slot drop. They'll give them 18% of the net slot drop for two years. Then the next five years, it'll be 22% of the net slot drop. And then the final seven years of that first period, the 14-year period for this revenue sharing provision, they would pay 25% of the net slot drop. Well, net slot drop means the money that you put into a slot machine minus the payout, the state will get their percentage right off the top. What's left, the Seneca's got to run the whole casino with. They've got to cover all the operating costs. So when you, when you, what sounds like 25% on the high end of the net slot drop, it actually ends up being a little more than 50% of the net income. In 21 years, the Seneca's, the Seneca Nation received in, in revenue $2.4 billion. The state got 2.2. $2.2 billion. They didn't invest anything. They didn't risk anything. And they really didn't even give anything up, and I'll explain. But first, so it's $2.2 billion versus $2.4 billion. The difference is $200 million. Remember that number, $200 million. Because what, what, what the, what the New York State did is they said, we won't do class three gaming in Western New York. Well, the problem is New York State couldn't do class three gaming. Their law prohibited it. Since the 50s, they had a law in the books that said New York State can't do, can't do casino gaming. It was prohibited in New York State. In 2013, the state, and they had tried a couple times to amend the Constitution. In order to amend the uh, state Constitution, I hate to sound like I'm giving everybody a civics lesson, but in order to amend, amend the state, you have to, uh, the, the amendment has to pass two successive, two state legislatures in a row. So 
Two years in a row, they have to pass a, an amendment. And then if it passes those two legislature periods, legislation periods, then it goes to public referendum. So it's a three-year process. So in 2013, New York State had gotten to its second year that it went through the legislature to amend its constitution on class free gaming. And it was going to go to public, public referendum. So in 2013, by the end of 2013, New York State had amended its constitution. So now they could do class free gaming. But they could only do it in the sites that they specifically passed it to. So three sites. One on the other side of Rochester, and I think two downstate. So, and those didn't open up until 2017. So for that entire 14 years that the Seneca Nation was paying up to 25%, up to 50% of, of its net revenue to the state of New York, the state didn't give anything up. They couldn't do class three gaming anyway. They couldn't do it. In fact, the first class three gaming operation didn't come in until that 14 year period had expired. So in 2016, what happened? Well, in oh, let me back up. What they did, what the state did do was it started expanding class two gaming. So they opened up Hamburg Gaming, Batavia Downs, Finger Lake Downs, and they turned them into slot parlors. In fact, they advertised it all over the state that, that they, had, they had casinos now. State had casinos. They call them that. And they call those machines slot machines. So the Senecas had stopped paying at some point. And they said, you're breaching our, um, our revenue sharing provision, our exclusivity. And the state said, no, we didn't, because those are class two machines. And we, spe we specified that we would not do class three machines. Yeah, but you're still taking market. Well, yeah, you're taking market. We, we're taking market share from you. Well, that means it diminishes the value of, of, of the so-called exclusivity. But the, so, the, so there was a standoff. In 2013, before this thing went to uh, the state's um, amendment to the Constitution went, to, went before the people, the, they wanted to resolve this conflict with the Senecas. So Andrew Cuomo says, what are we going to do to fix this? President of Seneca Nation, Barry Snyder, says, we keep $200 million. $600 million was held in escrow. $600 million. We're going to keep $200 million and we'll give you four, $400 million. And we'll settle this conflict right now. So why would the Senecas do that? I mean, they were out losing market share. I mean, whether technically it had been breached, what had happened was they diminished the value of the, of the exclusivity that they were given, which is a problem with federal law because federal law says you can't give a concession that's not worth the same amount, at least the same amount that you're, uh, for, for the value you're getting paid. In fact, it has to be in the best interest of the native gaming operation to pay that revenue sharing. If, you, if you're giving them something that has less value than what they're paying you, that's illegal. Problem is the Interior Department doesn't enforce much when it comes to this kind of thing. So why did the Senecas settle in 2013? Well, I'll tell you why. Because, and I know why, because counselors told me this specifically. They said, our compact has an automatic renewal at the end of 2016 unless either one of us have an issue. It, unless either one of us want to amend that compact, there's an automatic renewal. If we didn't settle with the state, the state might not have renewed. And, they, and the Senecas were of the belief that if the, if the state of New York walked away from its compact, that they would be, they were told, 
It doesn't say it in the law, but they were told that your operation might have to cease to exist. So they settled, kept 200 million. The difference in what the Seneca's made in 21 years and what the state made in 21 years is $200 million. If they had not withheld that $200 million, the state would have been the $2.4 billion uh, revenue keeper as, as, instead of the Seneca's. I mean, it's, it's just ironic how that worked out. It wasn't planned. It is a coincidence. So, but the language of the, of the compact said 18% for, for two years, 22% for five years, and 25% of the net slot drop again, which is really the gross gaming revenue for, for seven years. There was no language in the compact that talked about the next seven years, the renewal period. There was nothing in the language that said that. So the Seneca said, all right, we're gonna settle this thing. We're gonna let them keep the $400 million, but we're not gonna pay them in 2017. So the Seneca stopped paying in 2017. And of course, you know, our words, Ota, Ota hit the fan. <laughs> but the, well, go ahead. A lack of understanding, which is why I was so glad you guys invited me. I mean, honestly, I'm telling you, you stuff that you could parse it out if you did the research yourself. But if somebody doesn't explain it or at least get you enough interested in the subject matter, you might not find out. So in general, most of the non-native public acknowledges that our sovereignty exists. I mean, we had good support even in our tax battles with New York State. And it's not just because people like coming there to buy cheap cigarettes. They just think we had the right to do it. I mean, that's, that's really what it came down to. I, I, many Americans believe that we exist as nations within a nation. That's not our concept. I mean, that, that's the way most people, and in many ways, it's taught that way, but we don't contemporize any of that, that history. That's why having the opportunity to bring some of that past forward to today gives me an opportunity so you understand why we have the conflict. Let me just finish the gaming story a little bit and because I want to I want to address that a little bit more. So the Seneca stopped paying and New York State says you still have to pay even though there's no language and there's nothing in the gaming compact. It's there's still nothing in the gaming compact that, that they said that said the Seneca's had to pay. There was no percentage and there was no mention of the last 7 years. So it goes into what is called binding arbitration. Now, binding arbitration meant that three judges would be appointed as arbitrators in that, in that binding arbitration. One would be appointed by the Senecas, one would be appointed by the, um, uh, the state, and then those two judges would narrow down a selection for the third judge. So we had two white guys and one native guy. The native guy was a guy by the name of Kevin Washburn who worked for the Interior Department many years. He was involved in gaming. He, he knew his stuff. Uh, I didn't know who the other two guys were. But in a two-to-one margin, this arbitration panel ruled that even though the language doesn't say it, we're going to assume that you have to pay. So our ruling is, yes, you have to pay. Now, let me tell you what the problem is with that. There's a thing called the Four Corners Doctrine of Contract Law. Remember I said 
somehow when the rule of law gets avoided when it, when it comes down to native issues, there's this thing called the Four Corners Doctrine of Contract Law. And what it says, if it ain't in those four corners, it ain't in those four corners. There's no such thing as implicit terms of a contract. There's only explicit terms. If it doesn't say it, if it doesn't define it, and I don't care if you did something, something as simple as buy, buy a, buying a car or a house, there's no such thing as what is implied. It has to be detailed in there. These two judges ignored standard contract law and said, we're going to assume it was implied. And we're going to allow this implicit inclusion that you must pay for another seven years. We're going to rule that way. So they threw out all legal precedents so they could make their ruling in favor of the state. And in doing so, the last seven years, the Senecas no longer had an agreement with the state. They had an imposition upon them by the state. They didn't agree to that. Two white guys on an on a, on a arbitration panel forced it. They, they changed the language of the compact by saying, oh, you're going to pay for another seven years. Now, here's the other thing that they violated. There is a thing called the canons of construction as it relates specifically to contracts and treaties with Native people. And, what, and this is a, sta a federal standard. And what it says is that if a contract or a treaty is entered into with Native people and somehow the terms are ambiguous, it must be interpreted in favor of Native people. Now, part of the reason is, frankly, they didn't think that we were sophisticated as the people who were drafting those documents in the first place. And you know what? They're probably right. But I, you know, I didn't want to make it sound, it actually sounds racist in a way, but, but it, it's true. They didn't think, they, they thought New York State, federal government, big oil, timber companies, you know the language better. You have years and years of experience drafting the legal documents. So if you can't avoid ambiguity in, in your document, that's on you. So if, if you can interpret this a legal document Somehow interpreted in two different ways. If there's any presence of ambiguity, and I'm not even saying the Seneca's gaming compact was that ambiguous, but because it wasn't in there, at very least, the con again, the canons of construction would have dictated that those two judges should have interpreted it through the eyes of the Seneca's, which meant they didn't have to pay it for the last seven years. So, if you know how the story played out, the Seneca said, well, we can't appeal this because we agreed to binding arbitration, but you've now changed our compact, so we want the Interior Department to weigh in because they ultimately have to approve a change in a gaming compact. The problem is Interior Departments have almost never weighed in on these things. They've, they've let everything go. They've always just ignored some of these conflicts. And this one did. And there's even a native person who's the head of the Interior Department right now. Deb Halland, she's Laguna Pueblo, and she actually worked in the gaming industry for her nation. So she knew, she knows some of this stuff. So the Seneca said, we, we want the Interior Department to weigh in. Ultimately, they got the National, Indian, National Gaming Commission, um, which works under the Interior Department, to do an investigation, but only on that thing that I mentioned earlier about the third party um, stakeholder. And so they did a report only on that, that potential violation. 
And what they said was, well, the three things that determine whether, whether a, a, an entity is a, is a stakeholder is the term of the relationship. Like, how long is it? Is it significant? Is it a substantial period of time? Well, <laughs> 21 years is a pretty long period of time. So they said, yeah, but, but, but the, the underlying federal statute allows for these long-term compacts. So we're going to ignore the fact that that, that one's there. Well, do, are they making money off of the whole thing? Yeah, they were making an ungodly amount of money for something they didn't make any investment in. Yeah, but the, the uh, Interior Secretary back in 2002 approved it, so we can't really say the state is violating something if the Interior Secretary approved it. And the third thing is, do they have regulatory control over the facility? Well, that's exactly what the compact gives the state. So the guy investigating this thing said, even though those, we, we can't apply any of those standards, we're going to say that there, you know, our determination is, the, no, New York State is not a, a stakeholder in Seneca Gaming. So that was the extent of the investigation. They never investigated the primary issues. Did, this, did the Senecas pay too much? And, but in that report, the NIGC did say, it does appear the Senecas overpaid. And further investigation needs to be done to determine whether the amount that they paid, whether they got what they, you know, did they get something of value for it? So when that came down, it was pretty clear that the Senecas weren't going to get any uh, intervention from the Interior Department. But they were still pressing it because they wanted, they wanted Deb Haaland the native woman who broke the glass ceiling who was now sitting in a cabinet position. They wanted her words on this. She suggested that there could be a rule change, but she didn't do anything. And in the, in the midst of this going on, the Senecas had first said they were going to pay it. It's $560 million, almost another $600 million. But then the people, Seneca people said, wait a second here. We've got some issues here. So then the Senecas said, okay, we're going to hold up on the payment. Well. Kathy Hochul was about to, she was trying to close the deal on two things, her state budget and how she was going to give a whole lot of money to Terry and Kim Bagula, the owners of the Buffalo Bills, to build a new stadium. So she was pissed. And actually, so were other people, like Crystal People Stokes. Some of the assembly leader of the. Uh, uh. So these people were pissed that the Senecas had initially considered paying, but now we're saying, wait a second, you're probably going to get paid, but we need to exhaust some of these other remedies. Hochul said, enough of this. Now, her husband happened to be the former U.S. attorney for the region, William Hochul, went, went to work for Delaware North, Seneca's uh, you know, big competition, right? So she comes up with a, a way to force the Senecas to pay. She uses a law that basically is in place that says, if you've been fined by the state of New York and you don't pay that fine, I can freeze your accounts until you pay it. So she treated the Seneca Nation as if they were fined this $560 million. Now, she didn't do anything to the account that that $560 million is sitting in. She froze all the operating counts of the Seneca Nation. All of the operating counts of the Seneca Nation. Checks were bouncing. She did this on a Friday. Checks started. The Seneca Nation issues an immediate 
sets of emails to all of his employees say, hey, look, if you haven't deposited your check yet, hold it. Hold it till Monday or Tuesday. All of their operating accounts were, were frozen. Everything to do with healthcare, payroll, everything was frozen. So on Monday, the Seneca's cut a check for $560 million to Kathy Hochul to free up their accounts. Just someone was, Out of that $560 million, Kathy Hochul turned around and gave $400 million of it to Terry Pagula, along with a commitment for another $400 million from the state of New York. Now, that money was supposed to go into state coffers. It wasn't her, discre it wasn't her discretionary funding, but this is how um, things are done in New York. And this is, again, how I say rule of law doesn't apply when it comes to us. Because the, the playing field isn't level. And most of that rule of law stuff, is, they're not our laws in the first place. But the fact that she could literally hold the entire operation, both political, you know, the government and the, uh, the gaming enterprise hostage so they would write the check for $560 million. So she made her deadline with the state budget. She fulfilled her promise to Terry and Kim Pagula. Now they're building a smaller stadium that mostly white, wealthy people are going to be able to go to because they're, more, they're, they're going to be more executive suites and less general seating. So that's what, that's what you get out of your owner of the Buffalo Bills. So that compact, which ends on December 9th, <laughs> leaves everything in limbo now. Because should the Senecas have to keep paying if they have to op if, if or what happens? We can't get a straight answer. And for whatever reason, even though the, the Gaming Act has been in place for 35 years, there's still more questions than answers when it comes to the abuse that Native people experience at the hands of the states that they're supposed to compact with. So anyway, uh, what, what was your question? Well, every time they tried to bring any parts of this into federal court, they kept deferring back to the, um, the conflict resolution uh, clauses of the compact that said the arbitration was binding and it was not appealable. And every court that they went into said, we're not going to touch this. You agreed to binding arbitration. You know, it's your sandbox that you agreed to, so you're, you got to sit in it. That's so, no, the, the only recourse they had was to get the Interior Department to do its job, which was to, to provide oversight on what the, uh, what the state, well, any state, because this is the only example of this. Other states have been trying to squeeze native gaming for years. Now, I think it's important, to, now, we'll, now we'll go back to talking about culture. Seneca territory is different than here. There's no taxes levied against the Seneca people. They don't pay sales tax. They don't pay property tax. They don't pay fees to the Seneca Nation government. So the Seneca Nation government has no means for generating revenue other than its enterprises. Gaming is almost the sole source 
of public finance for the Seneca Nation. Your municipalities, your counties, your state, federal, there's any number of ways. New York has all kinds of ways to, to, to squeeze money out. The Senecas can only make it through, through their commerce. And they, and they have, they have, a, they have a construction company. They have um, class two gaming. They have class three gaming. They've got some gas stations. And, and the Seneca Nation itself has a couple of sea um, stores. In fact, they built one up in Niagara Falls uh, on the casino grounds. And that pissed off a bunch of people. Who the hell do those people think they are? They can, they can put a store on their property. So that's, but all of the revenue the Seneca Nation makes is what they fund their entire government, every service, every health. I mean, healthcare is still being funded in, in large part by the Seneca Nation. And, and they do some distribution to the Seneca people. But for anybody who thinks the Senecas are all rich, they get like $600 a month. But there's 8,000 of them, so it's a lot of money. So 8,000 Senecas, even if they're children, it goes into a, into a trust account. If you're an enrolled Seneca, you're, you're entitled to this distribution. But it's, it's like only $600 a month. It was higher than that, but it, they trimmed it back during COVID, and they haven't put it back up yet. But they're not making $100,000 a year. Every, every individual Seneca is not a, a, a casino mogul. And so they get that. 30% of the Seneca population is still living at or below the poverty line. $600 a month doesn't, doesn't make it. I mean, that's, pretty, that's not even a car payment anymore. Well, maybe it is for a cheap car, used car. But, it's, it, but it's, it, it, in the overall scheme of things, it's not a lot of money. And we have very limited resources there. You can't build a house on Seneca territory unless you have the cash to do it or the Seneca Nation provides a program to, for housing. We can't go to a bank and get a loan to build a house. Why? Because we can't collateralize the loan with the land. So doing a business, building a home, we can borrow money for a trailer because if we don't pay it, they can throw the wheels on it and pull it out of there. So rolling stock we can buy. So if you wonder, why do all those Senecas live in trailers? It's because it's the only thing we can buy. I'm not Seneca, but I do live in a double white on Seneca territory. Uh, and if I don't pay for it, they're going to throw wheels on it and pull it out of there. So it's different there. We don't have we don't have the crime rate on our territory. We don't have police. We have, we have marshals there, which are kind of peacekeepers. They don't even carry weapons. I think they carry pepper. My son was a marshal for a while. You know, they had pepper spray or something like that. But um, it's different there. It may not look different when you go there. But you know what? We don't have an economy on native territory. We have businesses. But in order to have an economy, a dollar has to come into a community and it has to change hands three times. Just simple rules of economics. If that dollar doesn't change uh, hands three times within a, an area, then you don't really get the economic value out of that activity. All of the money that goes into Seneca, Seneca Nation, whether it's gaming or whether it's the guys who have smoke shops, we spend that money right back in the Western New York economy. The economic impact of the Seneca Nation alone is $1.3 billion each year. And that's measured in a bunch of different ways, including the fact that 80% of the Seneca employee or Seneca Nation employees are white that pay taxes, income taxes. 
property taxes. They buy cars and homes and they pay tax on all that stuff, sales tax, all that stuff. So even the tax generation is clear that, the, that it's a positive economic impact. You know what the Seneca Nation doesn't have? Land in Florida, shareholders in Arizona, other business, uh, other business operating throughout the globe. Delaware, Delaware North does. Terry Pagula does. Every dime that goes into the Seneca Nation stays in this economy. Oh, I take it back. You know the money that doesn't stay in the in the Western New York economy? It's the money the state takes. Even arguably whatever happened with this 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 400 million that went to Terry Pagula. The state has taken over a billion dollars of gaming revenue. Some of it comes back 25% of what the state gets. Two, so out of 2.2 billion dollars, only 25% of that came back to Western New York to to Niagara Falls. Buffalo, and it wasn't supposed to fill potholes. It was supposed to be a windfall for these communities. It wasn't supposed to be a part of their tax base. It was supposed to do improvements that, frankly, the Seneca Nation gaming operations would benefit from. Maybe some beautification, so it doesn't look like hell the second you step off of the, you know, off the gaming grounds. All of a sudden, you don't see bushes, you know, untrimmed and everything else. I mean, it was supposed to be to improve economic development in those three areas, Salamanca, Buffalo, and Niagara Falls. It didn't do it in any of those places. The only beautification, and it's, and it's a sad thing that, that we're resigned to gas, gaming, and cigarettes. But we don't have grocery stores. We don't have car dealers. We don't have clothing manufacturers. And why? Because we would not have they, those businesses would not thrive in our territory. The only ones that thrive in a territory that you got to go out of your way to get to is something that has a huge margin, tax margin, gaming that you can't do anywhere else. But to be clear, every dollar stays in Western New York. We only get to maybe, we, we, may, we may touch it once or twice. We, we, I buy gas on territory. So when I get money in, I'm going to fill my gas tank with money. But other than that, well, you, you can buy weed products now. So, <laughs> but I'm not, a, I'm not a big consumer of cannabis products. But, uh, you, you know, I'm, and I don't condemn it. I'm just saying that I'm not, uh, that's not what I do. My wife actually uses gummies for neuropathy, but uh, that's a whole other issue. But anyway, but there's not a whole lot of businesses that will allow a dollar to come into our community and stay in the community. That's one of the things that I mean. That's the cultural difference. And part of it's cultural, but part of it is just, it doesn't work, work yet. Until we can take those fast nickels and turn them into slow dimes by, by trying businesses that will have more moderate success, we will never have a true economy. Because Western New York is by a, a long shot the primary beneficiary of Seneca Gaming, even without revenue sharing. $1.3 billion of economic impact in Western New York. You know what that would get you if you were Tesla? Exclusivity. You know what it would get you if it was Amazon? Tax breaks. 
It would get you all kinds, if any other company that provided the level of economic impact that the Seneca Nation, they would, state officials, city officials would be falling over themselves to, to have, a, you know, to have that kind of business opportunity. But we're treated different. Instead, the state says, regardless of that economic impact, we want you to pay revenue sharing to us. This is the point of contention that, that's, that's brewing right now. And, and it's got the Seneca Nation almost at the point of, I won't say civil war, but there's a lot of tensions going on there. Because what you have is lawyers, lobbyists, gaming consultants, and, and, and a whole lot of other non-native industries, cottage industries that have made money off of gaming, saying, just pay to play. Your best bet is to just pay, no pun intended, um, is to just pay to play. Pay the state something. Offer them something. Now, the state's still trying to squeeze them. First, it was 19.5%, which 19.5% of that net slot drop, let's go back to what that means again. Because the, the second offer that came back was 18.5%. If the Senecas only get to keep around 80% of the revenue of a slot machine, they still have to cover all of the overhead. And you know what? Funny thing happened post-COVID. Everything's more expensive. Labor is more expensive. Wages, salaries more expensive. Building materials. And you know what? All of their, their three facilities have aged a little bit in 21 years. So the... The, the percentage of money that has to go into maintaining and upgrading and continuing to make these, these things look new and shiny, that's more expensive. 18% of the net slot drop is probably still close to 50% of the gross re of, of the net revenue because everything on the Seneca side of the ledger has gone up in price, but the state gets their money off the top if the Senecas agree to that. So I wanted to mention that um, and I don't even know how long I can talk forever. So, <laughs> I, 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 okay, let's do that. But I want to mention one other thing because I played a role in it, and this might spark a little bit of interest also in the, in the question and answer. I was the single native person who pushed and achieved a state ban on native mascots in high schools. I not only fought this in Lancaster, which some people may have re recalled that, but I fought my old school, my own high school, <clears throat> Cambridge Central School. It's out near Saratoga. They were the Cambridge Indians. And I have played a role in this debate over the mascot issue all over the country. But I always had it back here saying, you know, at some point you got to go back to your home school, your high school, and you got to take them on. And I did. And I actually got it. And I won't go, go do the whole story, but I actually got this, the board of education, only five person board voted three to two to retire the mascot. But they had a board election that replaced a couple of board members. And the next month they were seated. So they rescinded the resolution to retire and said, we're, we're keeping it. And I helped some families fight that with the New York State Department of Education. And, and I wanted to do this with the Department of Education because in spite of what anybody wants to say about NYSED, 
they are less political than the legislature, and they're certainly less political than the governor. I didn't want this to be part of the culture wars debate that is, that's being fought all over the country. I wanted intelligent people who were concerned about education and children to understand the research that has gone into this thing and make their determination. So Nye said, ruled against Cambridge and said, no, you have to go back to retiring that mascot. Then I said, then I said, if you can do it to one, you need to do it to all of them. A commissioner from NYSED 20 years ago told schools to get rid of these things and to do it in a time that was practical. So it wouldn't have a, a huge economic impact on them. Richard Mills, back in 2000, I think it was, had told schools to get rid of them. And many of them did, but others dug in. They painted new gym floors with it. They put artificial turf with their logos on it. They put banners all over, you know, murals all over their schools. They doubled down. So I convinced Dr. Betty Rosa of NYSED to, yeah, issue a ban statewide. It went through the uh, New York State Board of Regents, and they voted unanimously to impose a ban for high schools to use native mascots. I'll leave it there, because if you want some questions, or if you have any questions, what, what's so wrong with native mascots? Well, I'll, I'll handle those too. But I'll, I'll just, I just wanted to throw that in, because that's something that I personally, I'm well-schooled on a lot of these things, as you, you probably picked that up by now. But, but this was a fight that I took on. And I didn't do it with the, the Seneca Nation wasn't fund, funding me. I didn't have a lobbying um, team. I didn't, you know, I, 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 I did this basically by, by driving to Cambridge, New York, five-hour drive from here, and taking on my old high school. That's how I did this. And I took a track that others said we shouldn't. They said, get a law passed. I think it'd be great if the state legislature came back and codified this ban into law, but frankly, if they do or not, I don't care. Because right now, no, only one school, Salamanca, New York, <laughs> Salamanca School District. The president of Seneca Nation pandered to the, the public and said, ah, we'll let them keep the Warriors. But that's, that's going to be the only school. I know, it's a bit of a slap in the face. But it's the only school in the state of New York that will have a native mascot by the end of next school year. All right, now I'll open it up to questions. <laughs> no, 40% of their students identify as native, which is a little different. I would say 20% of their um, student body is are enrolled Senecas. Now, I'm not saying that the other 20 are lying. I'm not saying that at all, but they may be non-enrolled Senecas. They may, you know, they may be Mohawks like me, you know, that, you know, so they may, but, there, but at least 60% of the, of the student body is non-native. And of, of that 40%, some of them are probably mixed. You know. but, but again, even if it was 40%, that still means that 60% of the student body is running around identifying themselves as warriors. And here's the other thing that bothers me with Salamanca in particular. The nickname is warriors, but you know what the logo is? It's a chief. Carson Waterman, who is an artist, um, he depicted for the, for the school's logo a, what would be an 18th century depiction of a Seneca chief. So not only does the picture not match the name, but it continues to do what most of these mascots did. It misrepresents truth. I mean, there's a distinction between what we call Rodi Scott 
which is a warrior, and Rodeane, which is a chief. Completely different roles within our community. And to suggest that that logo represents a warrior is, is problematic to me. And I, it's, no, it's not a slam, uh, you know, I like Carson. Carson, I mean, if you ever get a chance to see Carson in person, he's actually a funny guy. His jokes can be a little off color, so I'm warning you right now. But, uh, but he's a great artist, and, and I, I like the guy. But he's really proud of that image and the fact that the school used it. And you know what? Okay. But it still misrepresents what your name is. So I, after Rosa issued the ban, she called me. And she asked me if I'd sit on her native indigenous mascot advisory council. So I did. I don't know if that's even, it may still be in existence, but I, so I was a part of the Indigenous Advisory Council to, for the New York State Department of Education. And we nailed down what the guidelines were. So what we told schools is, look, you're not gonna just call yourself warriors and then put a, a soldier in for your logo. Because if you, you and I discussed this. I realized that the word warrior, none of these words are ours. I mean, but the word warrior, but if you have associated it with native imagery, especially fairly recently, then no, it's got to go. You're simply not going to change the logo because all of that old gear, you're still going to have people still reminiscing over using a native mascot. And so we, we battled um, Canadagua because they wanted to call themselves the Braves. They said, yeah, but what if we, we use the word brave like home of the brave? Well, that's an adjective. It's not a noun. You know, so I hate to give your school a little bit of a grammar lesson, but you, and you can't pluralize an adjective. So no, you can't be the Braves and say that it's part of your national anthem. It's, it just doesn't work. I mean, and so we, I was a part of drafting, crafting with NYSED, and I'm not saying I was the only one, but I will say I was probably the only native person on that council that was at every meeting and did the research. So, but anyway, that, uh, so that's what, so beyond getting the, the ban in the first place, I didn't stop there. I stayed, I stayed with it. Now I'm, now I'm working with Pennsylvania to try to do the same thing, but that, that's my, my next step. <laughs> but go ahead. Okay, so the question, because I am recording here, is, is how, much have, how much is the dialect between Mohawk and the other nations of the Haudenosaunee, or how much has that dialect changed over time? Well, there's no question that, uh, that time is, uh, does impact lang language. We, we've, we've, we've created new words in the language uh, that didn't exist before uh, Europeans came to our lands. So we didn't have a word for horse, but we have one now. But... Uh, Oneidas and Mohawk, the language is very similar. The, the biggest difference is in things like um, the R being rolled. Um, so we would say, my, my name is Garjillo, but Oneidas would say um, uh, with an L, like Galio. Um, my son's name is Ganaratio, but the Oneidas would say Ganalatio. So, there's, uh, so a lot of it is, is very similar. The Senecas, the, um, the language, not just the language, but even pronunciation is quite a bit different. It's a, um, just like Senecas and Cuyahuas, 
when you, if you ever hear a Seneca speak, the first thing that is noticeable is that it's, uh, and my, my grandson goes to school and he's, he, uh, he's gonna laugh because he knows I'm telling the truth here. It's nasally. Mohawks speak more in the, in the throat and in the chest. Oneidas, similarly. But Seneca, it, it, gets, it gets way up, 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 up in here, back, you know, up, up in here when they talk. And, and so, and it's not a criticism. And, and I, don't, I don't know why it's like that, but, but if you hear a Seneca speaker, you'll oftentimes hear it sounds a little, and, and if, you, if somebody makes a liar out of me, then by all means, <laughs> they're welcome to do so. But um, so it's, that's one thing in terms of the tone. But again, um, our word, uh, our, what, what's the Seneca word for cat? No, 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 no. Is it? That's incredible. No, the, our word for, for cat is the ghost. The ghost, and, and it refers to the, the, um, uh, the whiskers. It, it, it's actually related to trying to, you know, like, like they feel their way going forward. As, and remember, I mentioned earlier about the, the language being um, verb-based or, or, or sometimes descriptive. Our word for rain is not a noun. Our word for rain is yogonuru. And it's not the word for rain, but it's how we reference rain. And what yogonuru means is we know it's precious. We, we always placed a high value on rain, whether it was torrential rain or whether it was light rain. Because we knew that, the, that we didn't have the flooding issues. We, 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 we dealt with, because we weren't trying to control rivers and stuff like that, like, like that happens now. So we, we had a, a, a different appreciation for what, what rain represented. So that's why many of our words are descriptive words about what something does as opposed to what we think it is. So again, more verb or descriptive based. But but we, 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 the language has changed over the years. And I'll, and I'll tell you something else that's changed. 150 years of residential schools attempting to destroy our language and our identities, it was effective. It didn't just destroy in children. It also separated relationships between families, mothers and daughters and fathers and sons. On the mascot issue, Many of the survivors of those residential schools, when forced into the dominant culture after having so much of their own identity wiped out, saw in the dominant culture that, hey, look, they, they've got a native guy on the side of a football helmet or on a hockey jersey or on a baseball cap. So when I was a kid growing up, even in my old school called the Indians, although I wasn't flattered by it, I knew people, I, I knew some, I, I grew up with kids, native kids, who were Washington Redskins fans. Not even thinking about the fact that the word is a slur or that it's a misappropriation. But as sports fanaticism, and, and keep in mind, the word fan comes from fanaticism or from fanatics or whatever else, right? But as as sports would become such a dominant part of um, American entertainment, it became uglier and uglier for a native person to experience 50,000 people in a football stadium with red face and, and headdresses on and, and doing tomahawk chops and bringing, 
you know, even sacred objects like rattles and drums and stuff like that into a football game. There was a guy in Philadelphia, Philadelphia Eagles fan, Philadelphia Flyers fan too. He used to go to games. When they were playing against the Washington Redskins, he'd bring a duffel bag in with him back before they would stop you from bringing a duffel bag. And in that duffel bag, he had a head with war paint on the face, just a head. Look like a severed head with a headdress on it. And he impaled that head with a sword and he'd hold it up during the football game. And you know what? The networks would put him on camera. He also did it when the Blackhawks played the, the Flyers. He just had different, you know, he used to go on face paint. Green when it was Philadelphia, orange when it was, or, or green with the Eagles and orange with the Flyers. And during, not only would the camera zoom in on this guy, but, and I can't remember what, um, I can't remember what sports network was carrying the, the Stanley Cup playoffs at the time. But you know how they go to, the, go to break with the graphic of what the score is? They actually used his picture. He was a video of him standing in the crowd with that impaled Indian head. Now, my argument is, how do you explain that to your seven-year-old grandson that you brought to a football game or a hockey game? It, it wasn't just inappropriate, but it was applauded. And one of the things that, and, I, and, I, and this is an analogy that I make on the mascot issue, and I have to make it. We're the only people used this way. I know somebody's going to say, yeah, what about Notre Dame fighting Irish? Well, for one thing, Notre Dame was pretty much an Irish Catholic university. So if they wanted to call themselves the fighting Irish, it was up to Irish people to decide whether it's wrong or right or whatever else. Plus, their mascot's a leprechaun. Leprechauns don't exist. They're not real. Lucky charms are not. So, But what we get confronted with all the time is, I don't know why they're raising such hell over this. We're just honoring them. No, you weren't. We were never consulted by any of these schools who adopted this, including Salamanca. City of Salamanca, those people hated us down there. They didn't call themselves warriors to honor the Seneca Nation. Maybe things have smoothed out a little bit now since. But my question is, how would you honor black people? I mean, there's been some incredible Americans who are black. Harriet Tubman, you know, Frederick Douglass. I mean, if you, if you don't want to go that far back, I'll, Jesse Owens, Martin Luther King. I mean, we can, we can name all kinds of people. Muhammad Ali. I mean, but, I mean, there's all kinds of, you know, incredible athletes or, or other people in American history who are black. So couldn't you honor people, black people with a mascot? But how would you do it? What, what would you call that team? And what would, your, what would your mascot be, your logo be? You know what? You can't. You can't do it. And you know what? If you can't do it to black people or Jewish people or Hispanic people or Arab people, you really can't do it to Native people either. But here's the other thing that gets missed in this conversation. What happens with schools that have Native mascots, and I confronted this when I went back to my old high school. Some of those people at those board meetings, Man, there was some hate in that room. <laughs> and they would, they would say, I went to Cambridge from kindergarten to 12th grade. I was an Indian, and I'll always be an Indian. 
And this was a white guy. So if you could get somehow past that hurdle of a name that would work to honor black people or a mascot that worked, that could somehow work, which you can't, but if you could, how do you reconcile a team of predominantly white kids running around calling themselves black just because their school mascot was, was black? And how do you think the black community would, would, uh, would respond to that? I mean, and I have to make this analogy because we know that blackface is wrong, but we don't know that redface is wrong yet. I mean, I know people are still pissing and moaning about Uncle Ben and Aunt Jemima and that Indian maiden on the butter box, but look, most of that stuff that people associate with, even the Aunt Jemima thing isn't true. Everybody's tried to tell the story about this woman who made all this money and she, it was her pancake mix and everything else. None of that stuff is true and you can research it. You can snopes it if you want, but, but at some point, it's about misappropriation, misrepresentation, because every mascot depicts us as people of the past. And that's what you're teaching all those kids. A friend of mine who was, who was on Seneca Nation Council, we went, he's an entrepreneur. He owns a couple of stores and um, businesses on, on uh, Seneca territory. We got invited to what was supposed to be a business incubator in Great Valley. And they had one of these high-level Department of Commerce guys come in from Washington to celebrate this building of this incubator. If you don't know what an incubator is, I'm not quite sure either, but that's what it was called, an incubator, anyway. Um, and uh, so my buddy was introduced to this guy from the Department of Commerce, and, and he was introduced as one of the more successful Seneca entrepreneurs in the, uh, in the area. And he says, oh, um, is it, what do you do, beads and leather crafts? This is a highly educated guy, and granted it was 20 years ago, so it's a, but it's still only 20 years ago. He could not fathom the idea that a native person could be a successful business person outside of his limited view of what a, a native person was. He assumed he must have been selling beads and leather crafts. That's Washington. I mean, and I don't know what party he was, also, but, but that's the way he was educated is my whole point. I mean, I, I touched what, what I'm sure you guys all shook your head in agreement with some of the things that you learned in school, and, mu and much of it was wrong. We hear that Native people enlist in the military at a higher rate than anybody else in the United States. Then we hear some crap story. It's because it's our warrior culture. Like somehow we are just predisposed to want to kill people, and we don't care whose uniform we wear to do it. We'll wear the one that was killing our people. You want to know why Native people enlist at a high rate? Because we don't have a whole lot of prospects for the future. We don't have economies on our territory. We have poverty. And, and it's the same reason that black enlistment is pretty high, too. But it's also, there's this window that you believe that perhaps in the military, I won't experience the same level of racism that I experience every place else. You know, people talk about sundown towns. You know what sundown towns, what, what they mean by that? They applied to native people, too. Cattaraugus is right beside Gowanda. Uh, I live on the Gowanda side of the Cattaraugus territory of, of Seneca Nation. 
Native kids were not allowed in the village of Gwanda. Or not native kids, native people, but you know, kids are the ones that are hard to control, right? It, there was a specific curfew. There was, I mean, they didn't call it sundown laws. But there's this, for some reason, it is hard for most people to, to fathom that the native experience has been based on racism. Crystal People Stokes, I mentioned her name. I know she's a big fan of yours, I can tell. Um, one of, uh, again, same friend of mine who went, when he was on council went out to Albany because he, we want to talk to some of the state legislators leaders to say, look, we're going to have a problem with this compact. And what he mentioned to her was that the Senecas were being treated, they were receiving racist treatment from the state. And she said, you just stop right there. How dare you? How dare you come into my office and use the word racism after what happened to my people at Top's Friendly Market? Look, there's no question that what happened at that Top's Market was terrible. But that's not where the beginning and end of racism is. But how do you think white supremacy gets embraced? It's practices and policies. You know, that kid who did that wasn't raised in a vacuum. But for Crystal People Stokes to say that somehow we as Native people can't assert the clearly racist policies that have affected Native people for hundreds of years, we can't call it racism because they're not shooting us down in the street? Well, they were. You know, there's a, there's a movie coming out in October. Uh, you guys have heard of Killers of the Flower Moon. Have you heard this? And, and it's probably going to be an incredible movie. I mean, it's got great actors, great director, and that kind of stuff. But it's based on a book called Killers of the Flower Moon. I'd advise you to read the book because the book is incredible. I'm afraid the, the movie's going to make you feel sorry for the Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio character. But it's, but it's still probably going to be a good movie. It just may not be true. But you know what? I had the author of the book on my show. And I asked David Grant, I said, David, I don't understand. The Tulsa massacre, or the, uh, I'm sorry, the, the Osage murders took place in the 1920s, primarily. I mean, it, actually, some happened before that and some happened after that, uh, later in, into the 30s even. But you never mentioned that 40 miles down the road was the Tulsa riots. You wrote the book, and you read the book. It, 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 he clearly identifies this as racism that was first and foremost behind these murders. But see, Native history is always siloed. So we'll talk about the Osage, but we're not going to say that 40 miles down the road, hundreds of black people were killed for, just because they were successful in, in Tulsa. Most people, I never learned about the Tulsa riots until you know, about 10 years ago. And I suspect most people didn't know anything about Tulsa riots until about 10 years ago when it started, started getting uh, a little bit more newsworthy. But I bring that up because we can't treat any people as a silo. We have been here for a long time. We predate Columbus, colonization, the United States, calling it America, calling it all that stuff. We predate all that stuff. But we, we're still here. We've experienced American history, albeit through a different lens than you do. But we experienced the same history. And I think it's important that, that 
at least having a conversation to understand that perhaps the perspective that you have isn't, I'm not saying it's wrong, but, that, but, but another perspective can exist based on our lives. I'll stop it there. Unless somebody has one more question or anything else, I mean, I, I, I'm, I can be long-winded. But I, I hope that you guys enjoyed the conversation. And look, I, I, do, I do radio. If you, if you um, listen to podcasts at all or if you're on Facebook, my Facebook pages, I've got two of them. One is called Resistance Radio and the other one's called Let's Talk Native. You can ask your smart speaker to play Let's Talk Native podcast. Um, I'm on YouTube. Let's Talk Native TV is my YouTube channel. Um, you can find any of this stuff. And stay in touch with the museum because I'm going to stay connected with these guys here too. And uh, you know what? Maybe they'll invite me back. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'd just like to say...